lifetimes of listening. Music is, a, of course, a very important part of, of, I think, everybody's life. He played everything from Bach to Boogie Woogie. He really loved playing the keyboards. It was all in me, and my dad was there, and everything was there. Music, in those ways, became a great outlet. Like, this makes sense. And I, and I kind of, yeah, I, I fell in love with him through his music. Lifetimes of Listening. Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. It's a podcast that uh, seeks to understand why music is important in people's lives. We're glad you're with us here today. We're going to be exploring on this episode how music evokes memories. And uh, to further that discussion, we've invited as uh, our guest today a renowned researcher in the field of musical memories and how they intersect with people's lives. It's really fascinating work. And we're going to be excited to share our conversation with her. That's Kelly Jakubowski. She'll be joining us in a little while. One of the things, you know, Brian, that we're going to want to talk with Kelly about is what the science says about why musical memories, first of all, stay with us so long and why they're so vivid. And I'm just curious whether you find that musical memories that you have are more vivid than other kinds and, and how, that, how that is for you. You know, I've, I've been wrestling with this, doing these interviews and speaking to so many people and hearing the amount of detail that they associate with the memories is beginning to convince me that there is something about music that really locks in details and in, in a way that's, you know, so for me personally, I, I went to a symphony concert when I was a child mm-hmm. that my dad sang a solo at because my dad was a singer with the with the Robert Shaw Chorale in Atlanta and I remember seeing him on the stage and I don't remember the music I it it would have been a classical choral work at some point but I I just remember seeing him on the stage in what was the Symphony Hall of the 70s in Atlanta and it's and it's a snapshot like I can mm-hmm. it, it, and and I've never seen a photograph of it. <laughs> I was later told that I remember being told some of the details about it, but you know this is a weird weird memory it's 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 very significant to me it's a it's been a very important memory to me in terms of my identity and my autobiography and things that we'll talk to Kelly about here in a minute but it's tied into this music and musical performance, and I just I, it it feels to me like it's a core foundational memory, hmm. um, and yet I can't remember the music. I mean, I was a child, you know, as a classical piece of music. I, but the memory itself is seems seems vivid. That that where you were, yeah. what was happening, so forth and so on. Yeah, yeah. I remember sitting next to my mom in the little seats, like a it was like a movie seat that popped up, and I was too, barely large enough to keep it pressed down, <laughs> the yeah. spring down, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. so. How, how about you? Are, are your musical memories more vivid, or do they make a bigger impact in your memory they, than they other kinds? They seem to in many ways, because I, I can often remember, for example, the first time I heard a song, uh, the first time I may have performed a piece of music. Um, I, I have this, I, I may have shared this memory before when I was around, uh, I don't know, 12 years old, whenever the Beatles were first hitting it big in America. Uh, one of their songs was If I Fell, right? If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? So forth and so on. And Mm -hmm. a a young friend of mine, Tommy Stegman and I, were out in front of my house, hanging out, playing, 
as maybe 12 or 13 year olds. And somehow the two of us, he started singing this song. He said, oh, have you heard this Beatles song? He started singing it. And somehow very naturally, we sang in two-part harmony, just the way the Beatles did. And, hmm. and I can hear that. I can almost hear his voice and mine, but I can hear the Beatles in my, in my brain, in my, my mind's ear. And I can see the traffic and the street light and my home and the driveway and the grass and what time of year it was. It was kind of chilly. So this was, uh, this would have been, <laughs> I'm, huh. I'm, I'm, reveal, I'm dating myself here. This would have been about 60 years ago. And that short little 30 second, 45 second memory has stayed with me ever since. And wow. I often find too, and I think I've mentioned this to you, that when, I, that when we're conducting interviews with um, uh, our subjects for the uh, Musical Memory Archive, I will often ask them, what does it feel like to be sharing this memory from earlier in your life? And the, and the term that often comes up is vivid, that people say, it's like I'm there again. Mm. And that seems to be a unique quality of, of musical memories. And I'm sure that, uh, that Kelly's going to have some thoughts on this, uh, this whole topic as well. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating yeah. aspect of what we're doing here. Well, our, our guest today is Dr. Kelly Jakubowski, an assistant professor of music psychology in the music department at Durham University, where she is the co-director of the Music and Science Lab. She has published many articles on music and memory and musical perception. She is often interviewed by journalists in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. And um, part of how I became aware of her was in a more recent publication uh, that she did in the conversation of which is entitled why does music bring back memory what the science says and that is such a good introduction to the subject and and um, almost immediately after I read that article I sent her an email and I'm really grateful that she's giving us her time here today and Kelly Jakubowski will be joining us shortly here on lifetimes of listening well, our guest today on Lifetimes of Listening is Dr. Kelly Jakubowski. She's an assistant professor of music psychology in the music department at Durham University in Durham, England. Kelly, welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Durham University Music and Science Lab and uh, your role there and the kind of work that you're doing. Yeah, so um, as you've mentioned, I'm the co-leader of our Music and Science Lab, which is um, an interdisciplinary research group. Um, and it encompasses people with a broad range of interests in, um, in, study, in studying music in some sort of scientific or empirical way. So we have people that are studying music from a sort of psychological perspective, looking at how people respond emotionally to music, for instance, or how we remember music. We have people looking more at the kind of biological or neuroscientific basis of music, sort of what's going on in your brain or physiologically when you're listening to or performing music. We have people more interested in the kind of computational analysis of music, so looking at large databases of music and identifying trends uh, throughout throughout time or throughout a big uh, sets of music and so on. Um, so yeah, we're really kind of just 
uh, united, I suppose, by this um, this joint purpose in terms of trying to make make sense of music yeah. uh, in, in a sort of empirical way. Yeah, it's all it's all really fascinating. My sense is that this whole field of music and perception and how people relate to music on a neurological and perceptual basis has really taken off in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. The, the work of Oliver Sacks, Dan Levitin, people like this has really uh, led us to some great new understand understandings about how people relate to music on a, on a very uh, basic cognitive uh, perceptual level. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a lot of interest, um, you know, across disciplines, like I said, so, you know, psychologists are getting more interested in understanding music, neuroscientists, um, you know, um, computer scientists, and everyone has something to kind of add uh, to kind of try and fill in that puzzle and, and, and the gaps in our knowledge about how music works. And so, you know, it's not just sort of uh, professional musicians studying music anymore. It's it's all mm -hmm. different types of people. I understand you you have both music degrees and advanced degrees in psychology, right? So you're both a musician and a scientist. Uh, how tell us a little bit about how you got into this field? Yeah, so um, it's a bit of a funny story. So I um, I studied music originally, and I'm a violinist, um, and I still play the violin and. Um, when I was so I was studying at a music conservatory in my undergrad, and um, as was sort of mentioned, you know, uh, at that time, which yeah, is probably more than fifteen years ago, music psychology or music cognition research wasn't as big of a thing as it is now. Um, and so when I was studying my undergrad, I didn't really know that it sort of existed. Um, but I was really just innately sort of inherently interested in um, understanding, you know, when we were talking about like music theory and 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 how people um, uh, sort uh, uh, develop oral skills, like um, being able to do dictation and music and so on. I was kind of like really interested, like what actually happens in the brain or what do, what are people doing when we're actually engaging in these activities? Um, and I thought I sort of invented music psychology at that stage because I was a naive <laughs> undergraduate. Um, but then I, I went to the library um, and I realized that actually, you know, people had been, I, you know, we had even old books from the 1970s by Diana Deutsch and colleagues, one of the real pioneers in this field. And I was like, oh, actually, this is, this is a thing. I haven't invented it myself. I'm not quite as clever as I thought I was. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it was really exciting to discover that there were lots of people doing interesting research in this area. Mm. You know, one of the things Brian and I were talking about uh, yesterday that, that we're curious for your take on this is, is uh, and we kind of compared notes with our own musical memories, uh, the question of why is it that music in particular evokes such long-lasting and vivid memories? Do you have any thoughts on that? Again, Brian and I, we kind of chatted about that yesterday and thought you might be able to reflect on that question. Yeah, I think um, so. That's something we've been really trying to unpack in my research and other research in this area. And I think we don't have like the definitive 100% solution per se yet. Um, but there's a lot of factors that seem to go into it. So one factor is the fact that music is a sort of inherently emotional stimulus mm -hmm. in itself. So um, when we hear music, we often can't help but respond emotionally. And we know that um, emotional stimuli can evoke more emotional and vivid memories to begin with. Um, so it might be this is, you know, seems to be part of the puzzle. And in my research, we've, we've shown that, you know, if you compare music against sort of equally emotional stimuli, some of this kind of 
power of music per se disappears, uh, uh, suggesting essentially that the emotionality of music is, is one of the factors that's playing a role here. Um, there's also the the way we engage with music, right? So, um, for instance, familiar music and music that we like a lot, we listen to over and over throughout our lifetimes, um, which can potentially, you know, strengthen the sort of link between the music and associated memories from our lives. Um, maybe more so than, you know, we, we probably listen to our favorite song more often than we read our favorite book or than we watch mm -hmm. our favorite film or whatever. Um, so this seems to be a, um, playing a, a really important role as well. Um, there's, um, you know, music is also something that inherently kind of engages our attention. So it might be a sort of better cue for memories later on. So, you know, if you're kind of at a party, um, you might kind of notice the music that's playing. And so that kind of serves as a good cue for a memory of that party later on. Whereas, you know, you might, the the sort of wallpaper at that party, you know, if you see that again, it might not remind you of that party because yeah, it's not something you kind of paid attention to, right? Yeah, there's just something very unique about people's attention with music. L like you say, other art forms, for example, I love the Mona Lisa, but I wouldn't sit and stare at it for an hour every day, right? But mm -hmm. but I'll get my favorite song stuck in my head for five hours in a day. Uh, yeah. The other thing I've come across, and I am by no stretch of the imagination uh, anything resembling a neuropsychologist or anything like that, but my sense is that music engages so many different parts of our brain. There's so many mm -hmm. qualities to music. The, the melody the harmony, the rhythm, the texture, the structure, the form, uh, if there are lyrics, if it's lyricized music, there are so many ways we engage in a cognitive sense with music okay. that between yeah. that and the emotional thing that kind of draws us to it uh, on that level, um, it just makes for memories that are vivid and long-lasting. Brian, you're yeah. right. I, I, yeah, I, I, I also wonder, and I, I'm, I don't know, I've never investigated whether whether anybody is looking into this but the something about the temporality of, of, of music you you have to there's a beginning and an end point to listening to music we exist in time in this way you know so I'm, I wonder if that's a part of it as well is that that we experience a thing across time the music has a beginning and an end it's not static and out of the dimension of time in a way that that um I, I don't know. I feel like that that plays a yeah. part into it. Be, yeah. Being in the present, being with the music, being definitely. The music. And um, I mean, I think this is going even a bit beyond memory now in terms of. Um, so uh, one of my excellent colleagues, um, Elizabeth Margulis at Princeton, she does work on music evoked um, narratives or essentially imagined stories, and and she's shown that like the temporal nature of music can actually influence the sort of um, imaginings we're having. So like, you know, you hear um, uh, music making, you know, um, a certain a certain type of music or a certain texture kind of maybe evokes a, a scene of some kind of uh, castle or whatever and a mm. king. And then you hear this kind of uh, clashing sound and then suddenly, oh, the king is fighting someone and so on. <laughs> um, and, and you can actually, uh, if you look at these kind of reports across lots of people, as she's done, you can see like consistency in where like the narrative changes in response to the actual structures within the yeah. music. Yeah. Um, uh, so I have I have a couple I have a couple of songs that I've had that experience with that somehow a certain couple of pieces of instrumental music that I've been exposed to over the years have for me turned into a story in my head that's completely a, a product of my imagination that I tell visually when I'm listening to that piece of music. And that's a, it's a wonderful feeling because, because sometimes they're 
stories that are kind of based on relationships I've had or experiences I've had or places I've been. And music can do that. It can just make me imagine things that wouldn't have been there otherwise. It's really, uh, yeah. really amazing. I, uh, I wonder also, how did you become interested in music and memories? Because I, I know that you worked with earworms for a while and you've done some other other things before this, but you seem, at least in the present moment, you seem focused or your, your most recent scholarship's been with music and memories. How did that begin? So, I mean, um, I've, I've been interested in the concept of memory for a very long time. I think um, I, I originally was kind of interested in sort of how we remember music and that somehow led into this research on earworms because earworms so songs that get stuck in our head are essentially sort of involuntary memories of music that pop up in our minds um so and 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 i found this research on earworms really really interesting because it's like one of our most common forms of musical memory is like having a song stuck in your head it, it happens mm-hmm. to so many people i mean the the sort of statistics from research are that you know 90% of people have an earworm at least once a week um, and and often, you know, much more. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, in that project, I started looking at this everyday experience of musical memories. And then that sort of led me naturally into the everyday experience of music as a cue for other types of memories. Hmm. Um, so most recently, as you've said, I've been working on sort of music evoked autobiographical memories. Um, so how music uh, can serve as a cue for other memories, specifically memories of events from our lives. I, I do want to play play some memories for you and, and get you to respond to that. But can you just briefly explain meme and uh, music evoked autobiographical memories and and how that became a research focus and maybe how that acronym came to to be? I, that that uh, I'm I'm interested in that. It makes it makes a lot of sense. But I I at some point, scientists perception scientists around the world began to to study this, you know, and I'm, I'm very curious about how that started. Yeah. So I think as far as I know, um, that specific acronym, I mean, people have been interested in the relationship of music and autobiographical memories for probably hundreds of years in different forms. Right. But in terms of that acronym of music evoked autobiographical memories, um, the first instance I know of that in sort of music psychology literature is um, Peter Janata and colleagues work in 2007 and they have a seminal paper where they've really kind of uh, probed lots of lots of these memories um, uh, from lots of participants and kind of set the groundwork for this this field. Um, but yeah, a music evoked autobiographical memory is essentially the experience when you're hearing a piece of music and that piece of music triggers um, a memory of uh, something from your life. Sometimes it's it's a sort of detailed event, or maybe it's just um, a sort of general time period from your life, um, or maybe it's bits of events involved. You know, you kind of remember, oh, this reminds me of my my mom and uh, you know uh, my kitchen from my childhood days, but maybe not a sort of fully formed memory. So there's different kind of levels of memories as well within autobiographical memory. It can be like you know one specific isolated event, or it can be a sort of broader period or so on. We, in our project, we interview people. We sort of do the inverse of studying music evoked autobiography. We ask people to share with us stories of autobiographical memories associated with music and and gather those. And so we'd, we'd like to share some of those for you and get your response. And, and um, um, among the things that I'm curious about is um, the kinds of questions that we ask 
uh, in part of our our interview process. I'm I'm curious to know the kinds of questions that you've. So I know some of your studies have involved journaling and some other things that you've mm-hmm. where you're giving prompts to people, and I'm I'm curious to know. Uh, a little bit more about that, but maybe uh, maybe in the context of let's let's listen to some some interviews first. So the first interview we want to share with you, Kelly, is uh, with a gentleman named Chris Malashinsky, who uh, Brian and I met a couple of years ago when we were participating in South by Southwest with a uh, University of Arizona event taking place there. And Chris has a wonderful story from his childhood, his school days, that uh, we'll let you listen to now. Uh, my name is Chris Moloshinsky. I'm a photojournalist um, for media in Sweden and in Norway normally. I mean, music is, a, of course, a very important part of, of I think, everybody's life, but uh, definitely mine as well. Um, in Sweden, when we went to school um, as kids, uh, the last day of school, uh, we usually went to church and we sang uh, these psalms which are very specific to that time of the year. Or there's specifically one of them, which is about summer. And the first time was probably when I was, uh, you know, in, um, in school. I was probably like seven, eight years old. First time I heard it. And every time you hear it, you think about summer vacation and being free because you're getting out of school and kind of life is, you know, opening up like everything is in bloom. You've, you've gone out of the dark period of, um, of winter and you're kind of being released into the summer. And, and this song kind of is about that as well. Then Blomstertid nu kommer. It's uh, in Swedish. It means um, the time of bloom that is now coming. The lyrics, Den blomstertid nu kommer med lust och fägring stor. Du nalkas ljuva sommar då gräs och gröda gror. Med blid och livlig värme till allt som varit dött. Se solens strålar närma och allt blir återfött. Yeah, the time of of bloom that is now coming with great lust and beauty. This sweet summer is coming... Um, when the grass grow, the grass and the crops grow, the rays of the sun are warming the earth, um, and everything is born again. Very beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful melody, and it's uh, and it, it it is so connected with that that last day of school, just before being kind of released, you know, and and knowing you have like a whole summer in front of you, and yeah, it's it's a very 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 powerful memory, I would say. So your thoughts, Kelly, on uh, Chris's, Chris's story? Yeah, really interesting to hear that. So I think um, just a few things come to mind. I mean, I think it's really interesting that it's, um, you know, it, in sort of psychological terms, it's, it's almost like this kind of conditioned response, right, where you have um, your um, singing those same songs at a certain period every year at the end of school. And so like, uh, because you're always coupling like the end of school with those particular songs, uh, you have this learned association that later on in life, he can't think of those songs without thinking of that time period. Mm, mm. So I think that's really, really interesting. And I was also thinking about the kind of cultural, you know, connotations, um, you know, him being from Norway, was it? Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously, like, if, if say, I heard those songs as, as 
an American living in the UK, I mean, I probably wouldn't necessarily think of summer. So I think, um, or, you know, the, the particular associations he had. So I think, you know, it's not uh, something that necessarily inherent in the music. It's about um, how, how music is used in a particular cultural context. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fascinating interviewing him. <clears throat> and one of my favorite parts of the experience and in listening to it now is him, we couldn't convince him to sing the song to us, okay? But when he shares those lyrics in his native tongue, it's just, there's just something really precious about that that I really appreciated it and, and enjoyed very much. And, and part of that, uh, the, so I, uh, I'm i also a choir director, and you can't get adults to memorize, uh, you know, that. He, he can uh, recite those lyrics today in a way that, you can get children to memorize things, you know, at the end of a school year, or where for whatever, and um, that's just fascinating to me. That um, for for what I mean, I it's it's just amazing to me how obstinate adults can be about learning and memorizing new things, and yeah. I have no idea if that has any um, any connection to this. It's 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 not a, a meme, you know, a music evoked autobiographical memory sort of thing, but it just the the idea of memorizing lyrics memorizing new songs maybe it's the lack of repetition whatever but it's it's a i was very impressed by that yeah yeah it's, definitely it's... And, and i'm sure like the memorization in his case is a more kind of implicit memory like probably his teachers didn't necessarily say you must go memorize this text but it's more from the you know that kind of uh lots and lots of exposure over many years um you just kind of naturally memorize it um you know similar with how we sort of teach children the abcs a lot of times they don't like sit down and try and remember the abc song and <laughs> we test yes. them on it um i have a three-year-old and i don't really test her on the abc song but i'm impressed by how much she remembers <laughs> yes. yeah yeah Okay, so we move to uh, story number two, Brian. Yes. You're going to introduce this So um, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Katie Prudick, who uh, was also at South by Southwest with us at uh, the same time, and shared a, a really remarkable story. So Katie Prudick is an assistant professor of entomology here at the U of A and is uh, the head of the eButterfly Project, a global tracking of butterfly migrations project or, or co-lead of, of, of that, so for, for those that are interested. But she, she shared this story with us that just blew us away. Um, there's a, a little bit of background noise that you'll hear from the crowds at South by Southwest. For me, I'd really like to explore more about how music influenced my uh, sports experience, especially in the sport of roller derby. I started that in 2006. And music itself was instrumental in sort of the halftime entertainment. We would always bring in local bands, mostly like rockabilly or punk bands. I think I would say growing up in rural Nevada, punk rock was sort of an escape or another way of looking at the world. It's more of like the way it sounds for yeah. music. And it's yeah. that major key. It's that fast pace. It's the, it's the almost yelling of lyrics of really trying to express that inner self and the uh, frustration and combination of frustration and joy. Yeah. That, that what's, what draws me to punk a lot of time. Like yeah. you're not the only one experiencing this frustration or these, these um, mm, struggles. Yeah, so originally I was, the word might be offended about going to a roller derby bout. 
my my now husband was like, Katie, we should go. And I'm like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go do that. What are you talking about? That's like a WWF or WWE. Now he would call it WWE, like fake sort of thing. And he's like, no, no, it's, 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 it's cool. It's like, all you know, you'll like it. And so we went and it was partly the women skating, but then also the music that would come on either in between plays or in be- at the, the intermissions that was again in major key. It was, it was trying to capture that frustration. And so that music would often be, if it was rockabilly, it would have a, a quick solid drum beat that would really sort of capture, uh, like almost match the beating of your heart and would sort of get you excited and, and um, focused on sort of the, the, the skating of those women over the tiles. So again, it would match your heart and then it would match the rhythm that they would have on the floor. Often those songs were, were um, created by, by whoever was singing them. It wasn't like a... Um, rendition that was from somewhere else it was very organic it was very in the in the moment there uh, associated with what that songwriter was experiencing and it somehow represented the the flow and feeling of the game right so roller derby is in these little um, 30 or 20 minute periods and it was two minutes of really intense content and the music itself would often be that too. So you would have these musical songs that may only last a minute, minute and a half, but they would be intense and and really fast and and really get you excited about being there and sharing this with the community. Yeah, really, really um, interesting. Again, so I think um, well, there was a lot in there, <laughs> um, and I think um, you know there was quite a quite a journey from the start to the end of the interview. Um, but I think. Um, yeah, the, maybe kind of tapping into some of the things that she said about the sort of rhythms uh, matching your heartbeat and matching uh, uh, the rhythms of, of what's going on in the roller derby and so on. And I think, you know, when we were talking at the beginning about the myriad of ways we engage with music, so we can engage with music in a kind of more cognitive way and so on, but we also engage with music in a, a sort of quite deep embodied or physiological way. Um, and again, this is this is one of the sort of potential reasons why music does seem to be so powerful in in sort of connecting to our memories, because it doesn't just engage us on this um, sort of cognitive, I'm going to remember this music basis. It actually does. It can actually, you know, evoke biological changes in, in making, you know, changing our physiology or um uh, making our heartbeat, you know, uh, our, uh, you know, to, to some extent can actually change your heartbeat. I would say, you know, you can't like <laughs> double your heartbeat by listening to music, but um, it, it does have these biological effects on us and so on. Yeah. One of the aspects of Katie's story there, though, she doesn't use the term specifically, is that for her, this thing that she'd never thought she'd do, take part in roller derby of all things, mm. um, turned out to be a very important kind of communal experience for her. So so there's a musical and communal experience that she's sharing with us that yeah. seems uh, ironically to have become very important to her at this point. And I remember Definitely. when we interviewed her, we were just blown away. Like, what is this next interview going to be about? We have no idea. And for Pete's sake, it's roller derby of yeah. all things. But boy, what a, what a uh, feeling she had about that. Yeah. And she mentioned also about, yeah, uh, kind of something about identifying. Now it was at the beginning of the interview and I forgot, but something about identifying with the lyrics or identifying with the singer. 
And um, I think, you know, this is a really important thing as well about how we engage with music. Um, there's a concept in music psychology called sort of social surrogacy. So the idea that music can like act as a sort of social other, even if say, even if you're listening to music completely by yourself, for instance, um, you have this sort of sense of social identification with either the music or the singer or so on. Um, so I think, you know, this is, this is, again, another way in which we engage with music. The, the, uh, these interviews that we're, we're sharing with you, they are uh, contracted from the longer ones. So on the website, we have the longer, the full version. So this is about a, I think a nine and a half minute that we've just given you about two minutes and 50 seconds of. And um, in the longer one, now she intellectually has, um, understands the process of her connection to punk music and this as a part of, of uh, third wave feminism. And like she is, she's, she's given a lot of thought to, to its place. But um, as, as I was editing, I realized that, you know, that the, all of these things could go in different directions. And I was trying to keep it just to two aspects of, of musical perception and, 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 uh, and things there. Um, but I, I, I say that in part, not only to draw a listener's attention to this, but, but I'm curious, what are, what would be the kinds of questions that uh, would be interesting to you? And as a person who's, who's done a lot of, of work, what are the kinds of questions that you were, if you were interviewing somebody for, for lifetimes of listening, what are the kinds of questions <laughs> that you would want to ask? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of, I have a lot of interest in people in this field have a lot of interest in kind of uh, musical autobiographical uh, musical autobiographies as they unfold over people's lives. So, you know, the extent to which particular music was sort of important to you or uh, is salient from your childhood uh, and then going into kind of teenage years and then young adulthood and so on. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see kind of how people's musical identities, I suppose, evolve over time. Um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting um, research around this idea of how our musical identity is formed, um, who shapes our musical identity at various time points in our lives. So obviously, you know, in, in our teenage years, we have uh, the kind of sort of most dramatic period, I suppose, of, of musical identi identity formation around um, what we call the reminiscence bump period, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. these are the most salient memories from our lives and so on. Um, and, you know, who's shaping our reminiscence bump, um, it tends to, you know, often be our sort of peer group and so on, mm -hmm. and, and the people that go on to be our sort of best friends later on, uh, you know, even throughout life. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the kind of um, the kind of uh, temporal elements over the lifespan are really interesting. The influences on uh, the sort of influences in terms of other people, also kind of cultural influences. Um well, I'm quite interested also in the degree to which, um, you know, people who have, say, um, uh, might actually have similar memory experiences if they're kind of, um, uh, uh, so to give you an example, you know, there's certain like cultural events where we found in our research that, you know, m music that was played at Princess Diana's funeral uh, cues memories of that event for lots of people across the country and so on. So I think the idea of kind of um, the degree to which some people who might not even know each other might have sort of similar memory experiences with the same sorts of music is, is quite interesting as well. For myself, Dan has been a... a interviewer and a documentarian for a long time. He's a, a little more practiced as a as, as an interviewer, but my interviewing has changed 
and it's getting a little better in some ways and uh, still have ways to go, I'm, I'm aware. But part of what I, uh, I'm aware of is um, just how how to give people the space to respond. And, and one of the things that I know that I was doing is uh, Dan, who is going to be editing the audio is, is that I was very interactive with Katie and you can hear that in the original in a way that may have led her to or away from different things. Um, but if you give people enough time, they tend to start they really, do. they do. There was Once, one one particular occasion. Brian was interviewing a student at the University of Arizona, and she told the story about something having to do with music and her grandmother. And I thought to my and I was observing and recording while Brian was conducting the interview. And I thought, okay, well, we got the story. I think, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, Brian, we can wrap this up now. But he let this young lady go on, and eventually the story led to her. I think it was Brian singing the song that was in question to her grandmother on her grandmother's deathbed. And I thought, thank heaven we stuck around to hear the completion of the story and to let this woman really open up to us. I sometimes find that that, uh, that conducting these interviews is as simple as, I mean, there's one basic question. Have there been moments in your life when it seemed to you that music was especially important or meaningful? And if so, could you tell us about that? And then, you know, after that, it's kind of massaging and giving, as Brian said, giving them the space mm-hmm. to uh, really open up and share what's important about music with them. Yeah. Great yeah, stuff. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me a bit of, if you've seen um, Alf Gabrielson's, like, uh, old work on sort of strong experiences with music. He he did this kind of thing, you know, back in the 80s, like, asking people about their strongest experiences with music and interviewing mm-hmm. lots of people and so on. Yeah, I will go. I'm gonna check that out. We'll look him up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Number three, uh, interview number three. I'll introduce <clears throat> for you. Um, and uh, this is uh, an interview I conducted with a gentleman whose name is Hans York, uh, who uh, lives in the north northwest United States, uh, Washington, or I think it's state of Washington. I met Hans maybe a dozen years ago. He was a touring. Uh, kind of troubadour folk singer who came through Tucson, Arizona, and I had him, he got in touch with me, and I had him do a little performance at the community where I live. <clears throat> and then I reconnected with him about a year ago just because I loved his music so much, and we got to talking. And I said, oh, why don't I interview you for our musical memory project? And he wound up sharing a story that to me is just so touching and so moving about music, holidays, family, and we'll listen, uh, let you listen to it now. This is Hans York. Well, uh, my name is Hans York. I'm a lifelong professional musician, touring artist. What I've learned, in some ways, I learned through music. I have to, I have two two things that come to mind. One is uh, um, a Christmas uh, preparation at the time back in Germany, and I was a little kid. I was probably four, four or five, and uh, my dad uh, he always would uh, put a blanket in front of the door that because the door had kind of a look through, you could look into the living room and he would put a blanket uh, before that so that nobody could see anything. And then he would go in and would prepare the Christmas tree, right? He, he'd put on a, a Christmas gospel CD of Mahalia Jackson and turned it up. And I would sit at the door with my head leaning against the door and it was just wonderful. I was like in heaven listening to Mahalia Jackson. I think 
about three years ago, um, we were in Dallas and I, and I remembered uh, the Mahalia Jackson album. And so I went on to uh, iTunes and got that album. And literally I did the same thing. You know, I put that album on, turned it up and decorated the house. Uh, that would have been, let me see, uh, 50, 55 years later. <laughs> yeah, 55 years later. And it's like, I mean, it went, uh, uh, it had almost a transcending uh, uh, effect on me when I, when I, you know, I didn't listen before to it. I just turned it on and turned it up. It was like, it was all in me and my dad was there and everything was there. You know, it was uh, the, the whole memory, everything came alive in some ways. You know, that's maybe the moment where I think time is not really not there, you know, because the intensity of that feeling is just was just the way it was back then when I sat there and was like, you know, it was the first time I heard anything like like it. These things have uh, um, reverberations that that are sent through time. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Um, So, yeah, I think, um, you know, this concept he's referred to at the end of sort of what we call in autobiographical memory research, so that mental time travel, like you're suddenly transported back to a moment. Um, and it's as if no time has passed at all. I mean, this is a, a, a commonly occurring um, a concept that, that coincides with the experience of, of really strong reliving, like, you know, um, feeling, you know, feeling the same sensations and feeling the same emotions that you did at that moment. Um, that's really, really interesting. And, and I think, um, this idea also that, I mean, you know, associating that music with that, you know, Christmas is a really exciting time anyway, and he's associating that m music with that anticipation of, of Christmas and the Christmas tree specifically. Um, so obviously, you know, the memory in itself, it, anticipating Christmas is highly emotional already, and then he's added this extra emotional element of the music. Um, I, I also thought it was really interesting how he said about... Um, it sounded like he hadn't kind of listened to that music, you know, he he kind of went 55 years and then he listened to the music again, but it still brought him back, um, which I think that that's something that we've seen come up before as well. And I, I think that actually makes it in some ways a stronger trigger um, because uh, what we call in memory research, the kind of cue item discriminability is really high. So like the music is really only associated with that event because he hasn't mm -hmm. heard it be any time since then hmm. um so it, it it's a really strong trigger for a memory of that event because um that's like uniquely associated with that music if he had listened to that cd you know a hundred other times since then it might not be as strong of a trigger um so i think that's really really interesting yeah the, the fact that he 55 years later reenacts his father's ritual and listens to the the as he says mahalia jackson uh, recording again for the first time and doesn't preview it. He just turns it on and starts decorating the Christmas yeah. decorations. Just very, uh, very wonderful story. I really appreciated him sharing. Yeah, it and it really kind of speaks to the kind of inter intergenerational uh, transmission of music and memory as well. Yeah, I live with my grandparents for uh, age six to I think nine or ten, and the yearly waiting for my grandfather to. Decorate the various parts in my uh, grandparents hosted had a big house and they hosted a lot of parties. And so every small 
part of the entire house was decorated and I, I I'm having these flashbacks these intense flashbacks to details that just are popping into my sure. head now and um, it, it's not associated with mu- music it's associated now with just this aspect of uh, of the uh, the intensity of those feelings of, of yeah. you know, and, Christmas and for Hans and his story it's the holiday <clears throat> it's dad it's dad's little ritual of keeping everybody out of the room and just hearing the music from the other room, um, the music, the holiday, the family, the environment—it's uh, yeah, it's a great, great, great story. Yeah, and the, plus, the, as a uh, music historian, just the idea of Mahalia Jackson finding its way to Germany, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the 1950s. Yeah, uh, yeah I, it's not That's that curious. she was obscure, but. But, but she was not uh, a global, globally known. I think now it's easier. Now there's fewer boundaries. Yeah, but but at point. the time, that's that's quite yeah. a thing. Well, this has been great uh, conversing with our guest today, Dr. Kelly Jakubowski, Assistant Professor of Music Psychology uh, at Durham University, Durham, England. Kelly, we've really enjoyed talking with you today, and we want to thank you so very, very much for uh, spending the time with us here to be a part of our Lifetimes of Listening podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you as well. Thank you for being with us on Lifetimes of Listening. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll also consider participating with our project by telling us your story. We're really grateful to all those 150 or so people who have already shared their stories with us by recording an interview uh, for the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. It's allowing us to better understand the ways that people value music in their lives. And if you haven't yet visited our website, please do so. It's musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. So pay a visit soon. Uh, There on the website, you'll find full-length interviews of the ones that we have posted here on the uh, podcast. You can also submit a musical memory of your own via a sound file or an essay or a poem or even an illustration of some sort. Um, Or you can suggest someone that you know that who'd like to share their musical memory with us and we'll reach out to them. Please take a look again at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. Thanks for being with us today for this episode of Lifetimes of Listening. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. Podcast.